0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. James L. Johnson, he's a longtime pastor, and he and his wife, Linda, have served together in Washington and California, among other places. They have nine kids, live in Rogers, Minnesota, and listen out of WCCO 830 in Minneapolis. Pastor Jim finds peculiar friends wherever he goes, wherever he lives, wherever he travels, in one form or another. This is the story about one of those friends. Here's Jim Johnson and the story of Everett
1: Model. Everett was a peculiar man in our town. Smiling, awkward, and heavy-footed, he spoke with a back lisp. But he didn't talk much, not to most people, but Everett would talk to me. I got the Lord in my life, Everett told me, not so long after he started coming to our church in a small town in northern Minnesota. He cried when he said it. Every time he said it, I think, Everett cried. Jesus is in my heart, he would say. It was 25 years ago this Christmas we sang our last Christmas carol together. I couldn't always understand his words, but I could always understand this much. Everett Model, the peculiar old man who mowed four lawns a day with a broken-down mower for $5 a yard, needed community, he needed to work, and he wanted you to know that he was a Christian. Everybody knew whoever it was. In the northwestern frozen, cold Minnesota burg where we used to live with 1,527 citizens and two grocery stores, a coast-to-coast and a hardware hank. You couldn't help but notice the Everett's of the world. He was about 60 years old back then, but looked a little older and he was, as we used to say it, a little slow. Although it doesn't seem nice to say it that way now. Ever since his divorce years ago to a private but functional owner of Mary's Corner Closet, the thrift store. Everett had made his home in a low-rent senior home, a a rest home as we used to call it, a six-room gray-shaked house with two gables, aging but well-kept. The Johnson Rest Home said the sign on the side. Because of Everett's quirky personality and his awkward way of talking and his seemingly worsening health, he moved from one rest home to another, one town to the next, until his diabetic condition forced the move to Midway Nursing Home in the oldest part of our town. Staying at Midway said a lot in itself. The seniors with a little better means, who needed help, they stayed in the newer municipal home by the highway. The municipal was definitely a step up. Attached to the regional hospital and a growing health clinic, the municipal was clean and new and bore the look of modern health care. Everett did not live at the municipal home. He lived at the Midway. The Midway home was, well, green. It was the original hospital in our town, a rectangular building with three floors, The Midway was built in the 1920s and saved from raising because it was, as we used to say, too good to go to waste. Painted in that verdant guacamole color, it brought smiles to first-time visitors to our town. But it served fine for Everett and about 20 other also-rans of life back then. Three meals a day and a regular turnover of nursing assistants who made about $8 an hour and worked hard at it. The Midway home was for people who grew up in the country and worked on homestead farms or taught in two-room schoolhouses. Those folks, like my folks, didn't feel necessarily that it was a step down to live in Midway. It was a step up for them. And as a pastor of a local mainline church, I held services there every Sunday afternoon and would visit people like Everett. Everett at first, lived just two blocks from our parsonage on 2nd Street, so I saw him often, but honestly tried to avoid him. My next-door neighbor, Steve, was the first to befriend him. Steve couldn't help himself. Everett asked if he could mow his lawn one day, and Steve was easy. He was a new Christian with a tender heart, and he could not say No. Everett pushed his lawnmower the two blocks from the restroom to our lots near the corner by the Dairy Queen on 2nd Street, and I have to admit, yes, I did think it looked odd to see a hunched and aging man mowing the lawn of a young, burly maintenance man, but Steve was undeterred. Steve said, everybody needs to have a purpose. What's life without a job? Well, I couldn't disagree with that, so... I paid Everett $5 to mow my lawn, too. The lines weren't always straight. He cut into my tree roots. He started mowing too early in the day. And his ancient Toro lawnmower coughed up clouds of blue smoke. But Linda and I hired him $5 just to be nice, once a week at least. Whenever it came to mow my grass, he would often crank up the Toro at 7 o'clock in the morning. Waking up our three little girls. Everett, I'd say, after I had him stop the mower. You can't really start until 8 o'clock, okay? Sorry, he would say. I didn't know. Sometimes my neighbor Steve grew frustrated because Everett would mow over his new dogwood bushes. Everett, you gotta watch where you're mowing, Steve would say. Everett would shrug, and Steve would hire him the next week. As a new Christian and a kind but burly maintenance man, Steve had a heart for the zeros of this world, and I was working on that too. Yes, Everett smoked too much, and yes, he was odd, and yes, Everett's reputation preceded him, but Everett was family. To us, he was, anyway. A child of God and a man who needed $5, and we agreed to help.
0: And you're listening to James L. Johnson, a longtime pastor. Telling the story of this, well, peculiar friend. And we all have peculiar friends. Maybe you're peculiar. I think I'm pretty peculiar myself. And you're listening to the story of Everett Model. And we're going to continue with this story. And again, this is just one of our great listener stories. And that's what we like to do here, folks. Christian, atheist, Jew, Presbyterian, Catholic, uh, Muslim. We want to hear your stories. All of them. Because that's what we do here. We tell everyone's stories here on Our American Stories. When we come back... More of Jim Johnson's story and, of course, Everett's story here on Our American Story. continue here on Our American Stories, listening to a listener's story out of our great affiliate WCCO830 in Minneapolis. Wherever you're listening, whatever affiliate you're listening to, you got a story, send it to us. As you can tell, we actually play them. We care. And by the way, there's some of our favorites. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, ouramericannetwork.org. Let's continue with Jim and Everett's Unlikely Friendship.
1: God sent Everett to our church, I think. Ever since I was a child, God gave me a heart for the nobodies of the world. I knew it from my boyhood in Bloomington, Minnesota. Jay, a neighbor kid with a Kool-Aid mustache and a hiney haircut, moved across the street because the Lord wanted to teach me something. My neighborhood on Stevens Avenue had 16 houses, all in the lower middle class blue-collar range, and The kids became my friends and teachers. They were bullies and brains, athletes and poets, musicians and scrappers and gossips and jocks. And the 20 children of the block on Stevens Avenue had the world in a nutshell. So Stevens Avenue became my training ground for character. Everyone counts. God made them all. Jesus loved them and I was supposed to love them too. Granted, you had to love and stay pretty far away from some people at the same time, but you can learn to do that. It's judgment and discretion and elbow room all at the same time. But if you're a true Christian, you better learn to be nice. Which brings me back to Everett Model. The old man came to our small town church for two basic reasons. One, we preach the Bible every Sunday and Everett believed the Bible, and two, You could wear flannel and boots and big bell buckles in our services if you wanted to, and nobody cared. We were the down to earth crowd. Not so many bankers or lawyers or dentists in our church. We drew the regular folks. We captured the market on regular at Calvary Church. The plain everyday people who invested their lives in road construction and milk plants, small grain farms, and auto repair. Even so, People still look twice when Everett waddled into our church. He spent his career doing small jobs and farmhand work, the lower rung of the agricultural ladder in the Midwest, but he came to our church every Sunday, and so he was our family. With 110 people watching him, it was entertainment and theology all at the same time. Everett hobbled up to the third pew on the left every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning sitting by the inside aisle, usually by himself. The rumors, of course, drifted in like a cloud, as always. Everett was strange. Mary had to divorce him because, well, we didn't want to say. And He was forced to leave a previous care center because he can't get along with people. He was stubborn. He was weird. He was poor. He was Everett. I suppose some of the rumors were true, but I chose to believe about 10% of them, and I still do to this day. With people, Take it with a grain of salt, as my mother used to say. And in a world filled with sin and sinners and flannel and jeans and rest homes and small towns and big cities and good children and the naughty and the nice who don't always live like they should, well, I suppose you have to give people a second chance. I guess there are a lot of things to overlook and of which to be forgiven. The angel said to Joseph in Matthew 1, 20 and 21, that, quote, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I guess Jesus died for people like Everett, too. God had used a man named Bob in a neighboring town to lead Everett to Jesus Christ one year. Bob, the truck driver, formerly the town bully, had become a believer in Christ and had become a pretty good role model, too, in our neighboring town. And as such, truck driver Bob knew what it was like to be alienated and estranged. So Bob brought him to his church in McIntosh and taught Everett that Jesus was God's son, that Christ died on a cross to pay the price for our sin, that Jesus had risen from the dead and wanted to enter into our lives and forgive our sin and create us anew. Our small-town church in Foston preached pretty much the same message of salvation. I'm thinking of that verse for, to you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Everett liked that, and he wanted to be a part of our church. So I made friends with him because I was a pastor and because I had a heart for the zeros of this world. Because I was a zero probably too. We're supposed to take care of people like Everett, aren't we? But it went further for me than just being Lutheran clergy. Everett, to me, represented the least of these people, as Jesus said. Like the poor man Lazarus in Luke 17. Everett was only asking for crumbs off the table. Who are we to say no for? Aren't we all as poor as Lazarus and Everett himself? The congregation embraced him. After a few months, we mostly came to love him, almost all of us, I should say. He came every Sunday, rain or shine, snow or sleet, and he stayed after for snack time and ate enormous amounts of food at our monthly potluck dinners and never brought a dish, of course. Pretty sure we wouldn't have tried his dishes anyway, but we came to accept and love Everett just the same. Like most of us, Everett had his good traits and his bad traits. He always sat on the right side, second row next to the aisle. One day a visitor came early and not knowing, sat down with his wife and took Everett's spot. My lawn mowing friend walked down the aisle, looked up to see his pew taken, and he didn't know what to do. I mean, while, while all 100 of us were watching, piano playing in the background two minutes before the service started, and with the church mostly packed, Everett hesitated. He looked, he, he turned, he stopped, he deliberated before quickly walking back to the folding chair section in the rear. But before he came forward, all the way from the back, we all watched him. What was Everett going to do with those two people sitting in his usual seat? He tapped the unsuspecting men on the shoulder. He bent down and asked the visitor if he could have his hymnal. We could hear Everett ask it, semi-intelligibly, "Can I have that hymn book?" With an unknowing shrug, the men reached over, grabbed the hymn book, handed it to Everett, and that was that. Everett took the book and walked back to the folding chairs in the rear, fully content. Tell you what, no one ever sat in Everett's spot next time. When you're a little awkward, you need a little time, and you need a good friend. And my maintenance chief friend, Steve, was just the guy. Steve was kind enough to ask him to help him serve as an usher with him. For Everett, that was a huge job and a great compliment. Carrying brass plates with money, offerings, checks, a few coins, that was a new horizon for Everett. It was perhaps the first time anyone had ever asked him to serve. And Steve... In flannel and jeans and cowboy boots would stand next to Everett in his lime green leisure suit, which I'm sure he bought at Mary's Corner Closet, the thrift store, while I prayed for the offering, the three of us standing there, front and center, and everyone else watching. And with Everett, his health beginning to fail, his hands clasped in front of him, would lean and list and stagger and catch his footing Just about to fall. You know, I'm telling you, few of the caring women, none of the observant children of the church, and all but two of the men closed their eyes during those prayers. Everybody was watching. They were sure Everett was going to fall. Don't let this happen. Give him a brace. But Steve would hang on, steady as can be, provide stability, and Everett never did fall down up there. But there was a new level of alertness during my brief opening offering prayers. But Everett would smile. He'd say, I'm an usher now, he would tell me. We were watching him crow. The other amusing part of being in a church service with Everett was prayer request time. Our small town church uses a family-friendly prayer request method. Just after the Apostles' Creed and before the special music, we ask if there are any special prayer requests, as we say it. And people raise their hands and offer their requests. Pray for my Aunt Kathy's having a baby. Pray for Norval's knee surgery. They would say, pray for travel mercies. We would use that phrase. But Everett was personal and long. Real long.
0: And you're listening to James Johnson, a longtime pastor. Again, this story coming out of WCCO 830 in Minneapolis. And we're hearing about Everett Model. And we all have an Everett Model. We may be Everett Model. And by the way, we do these stories from churches, from synagogues, from mosques. We do them because so many Americans in this country take their faith and spiritual walk seriously. And we don't back away from those things, and we don't proselytize here, as you well know. But to avoid these stories, to not tell them, would be a lie. And that's why we bring them to you. When we come back, more with this remarkable friendship here on Our American stories. Continue here on our American story, James L. Johnson telling the story of his friendship with Everett Model. Let's return to the story.
1: Everett raised his hand for prayer request time every single time. Yes, it's Everett. Do you have a prayer request? We knew it was coming, and yep, Everett would start talking and start praying and start asking and start crying, and on and on he would go. His requests were always personal, and mostly non-intelligible. They were primarily unending, and like some of my sermons, Everett's requests marched on and on. Pray for Bob and Bill and my brother Clarence, who needs to know the Lord, he would say, or we were pretty sure he said, and for Pastor Tom and Don Fritz, and stifled cries for all the people who didn't know Pray for Steve and Barb and Pastor Jim and Linda and the children and the people. And after about three minutes, you had to cut in and interrupt. And I would say, "Uh, thank you, Everett. Anybody else? I'll never forget, though, Everett's final Christmas wish. It was the day that I sang my last Christmas carol with him, 25 years ago this December, on that Sunday night. In case you didn't know, in northern Minnesota, the snow comes almost every early November, right after the hunting season starts, and it rarely melts before March. So every Christmas is white. Our church had this annual tradition of Christmas caroling two weeks before Christmas. A man in a neighboring town owned a large sleigh and cared for a team of four Belgian horses. Beautiful animals, and every year we would ask him to cart our church around town on the sleigh with those horses, and Sunday nights in December were slow nights in our town. And a church group on a sleigh could jingle and jangle through the city with the pleasure of the entire town. We could take the back roads to family homes and senior residences and park in the front yard. We also, we figured, could pull our sleigh one street off Main Street and park it right in front of the Midway home. That's where Everett was living at the end. Let's go sing for Everett, I said. Everybody wanted to see what would happen. So we took the sleigh up to the midway home and parked it and marched in, our boots and coats, our glasses frosting over, and we came to see Everett there. He had a a rough run of life there that last month. He'd been unable to attend church services for most of the fall, not able to leave the nursing home since the end of the summer except for visits to the doctor and He had fallen and broken his right wrist after a dizzy spell one day in November and was fitted for a cast. When I came into the Midway that time, he he showed me his cast and he would joke and say, So much for my boxing career, Pastor Jim. Oh, you'll box again, Everett, I'd smile and say. So when the 30 or so people from our church filed into the lime green nursing home that night to sing Christmas carols at the Midway, the seniors who could walk peered out the door and smiled, and they'd look at the sleigh and saw the horses. I haven't seen horses in years, some of them said. Our cheeks were red and rosy, and Everett looked comfy cozy as we came into his room. We're singing carols, Everett, we said. You want to come with? We asked in that Minnesota dialect that leaves that odd preposition dangling without shame. Yeah, I'll come with, he said. And in his stretched white T-shirt... Everett was looking good that day, unusually good. He was happy and even a little bit plump in the best way it happens for a 60-year-old diabetic and frail health. The midway diet was agreeing with him. His skin looked good and he held his injured wrist up high. I get my cast off tomorrow morning, Everett smiled. Crowd moved down the hall to the beat of heavy sorrel snow boots. He followed us in the pack and wandered down to the lounge that exists at the end of every decent northern Minnesota nursing home. And the people beamed as we sang. Everett was to my left, peeking into the lounge and smiling. We were singing, The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love you, Lord Jesus, look down from the sky. And stay by my cradle till morning is nigh. I looked and sure enough, Everett was singing, actually quite loud, in that lisping hoarse voice. I stood to his right and even stopped for a phrase or two just to hear him sing another verse. He was bouncing, no leaning or listing, not about to fall. Everett looked vibrant and alive and steady as he sang with the heavy-coated Calvary Church carolers that night. Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask thee to stay. Close by me forever and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. Well, the night was over and we left in a hurry. It was after 8.30 p.m., I'm pretty sure. Pretty late for a nursing home and the school children would go to school the next day. We were hustling to leave and I was the last one out the door as I was about to walk out the door I heard Everett yell pastor Jim I turned and looked down the hall and smiled and he held up his cast and he said holding up his right wrist I'll get it off tomorrow I smiled and I remember I said these exact words I said I hope you do Everett we'll be boxing by Tuesday I said And I waved, and I walked out the door, and that was that. We rode the sleigh back to church and went home. I never saw Everett alive again. The nursing home said he died in his sleep that very night. They found him around 5 o'clock in the morning. And you know what? I wasn't sad. No Everett model, the mower of lawns, got his cast off the next day. In heaven he was swinging his arm and standing firm, no leaning, no listing. He was talking to the Savior like Lazarus, with his wrist experiencing full motion. The poor child of God woke up in glory, no crying, just laughing, because the Lord fit him for heaven to live with him there, like the hymn says. As a follower of Jesus, Everett, in the most simple and childlike of ways, had turned from his sin and gave them all to Jesus the Emmanuel, born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, born to die for the losers and the winners of this world. Everett repented and said, I love you, Lord Jesus, look down from the sky. And Jesus stayed by his nursing home bed until morning was nigh. Yeah, the cast came off. And no, I don't suppose Everett is boxing in heaven like he wished that Christmas caroling night. But when I see him one day, I'm going to hold up my fists and smile just a little and fake a left jab and a right hook just before I hug him. Everett, that peculiar old man, mostly loved by a hundred people down here and loved by a Savior up there, pursued by a Messiah, born in Bethlehem, crucified in Jerusalem, alive in heaven today. Aren't you glad that Jesus was born for peculiar people like us.
0: And that was Pastor Jim telling a beautiful story about his faith walk with a brother, and that's Everett, Everett Model. And, you know, I keep hearing and can see that singing, that singing of that last carol, and we all know it, believers or not, but special meaning for those of us who are believers. And Aquinas once said, when we sing, we pray twice, and that's so true. And, by the way, the most substantive experience I ever had in my life with other human beings where I learned this kind of mercy and grace and kindness and patience. I wasn't a Christian at the time. I had a beautiful girlfriend in high school who served in nursing homes. And I would go with her and just hang out. And I got to meet people who were were close to dying and people weren't visiting them. And what I learned about people and humanity in places like Midway, and if you get a chance, Over the holiday seasons, anytime, visit these folks, sing with them, whatever their faith walk or none at all, just love on them. And that's what our show is all about, folks. Mercy, grace, kindness, patience, love, and the beautiful things that Americans do for each other. This is Our American Stories, the story of Pastor Jim and Everett. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite recurring features, the story of a song. And we've done every kind of song from every type of musical background, from Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall to Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, The Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, and Ray Charles's Georgia On My Mind. And now it's time for Greg Hengler's take on our favorite recurring feature.
2: If you've been to a wedding any time between now and 2008, Chances are, you've heard Beyonce's Get Out of Your Seat and Dance Anthem about men's unwillingness to propose or commit called Single Ladies, Put a Ring on It. Putting the lyrics aside, this song would be nothing without the irresistible and exuberant beat that sinks deep into your soul. The song is driven by staccato bounce-based hand claps and a keyboard. This hypnotic and irresistibly contagious beat gets everybody on the dance floor. What is it about this song that does that like no other? After some digging, I was taken on a fast, fun, and fascinating journey, linking what we hear in Beyonce's Single Ladies to what is heard in almost every black church to this very day. Let's begin by taking a trip back to the start and work our way up to Beyonce. Here's music historian David King.
3: A lot of people, when they think of gospel music, think of the sound of the vocal, uh, they think of spiritual aspects of gospel, but they very often don't think enough about the rhythmic aspects and the driving beat. I can't sit down. I can't sit down. I can't sit down. I just got to heaven and I can't sit down. So you can watch the sun, see how steady she runs. Don't let it catch you if you were Gospel has that tum, 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 right? It's influenced by boogie-woogie and other styles. And that pounding, sort of frenzied aspect of gospel is really important to its spiritual aspects. This is what caused people in churches to, to catch the spirit and to go wild.
4: <laughs>
3: but it directly got transferred into rock and roll music through the gospel fervor and energy of people like Little Richard.
0: Oh, my soul! to
3: do a little thing for you. Saturday night and
5: I just got paid. I'm rock it up.
2: I'm here's music historian Todd Boyd.
5: A guy like Little Richard, as with any sort of black artist from that era, is giving you the black church. As well as the black juke joint.
0: Here's
2: Little Richard's drummer, Charles Connor.
3: Richard said, I wanna bring you to the train station. I want you to hear something. He said, I listen to the train. The trans going off. He said a wife when they pick up speed. He said, what kind of notes are those? I say, those
2: are eight notes. He said, well, that's what I want you to play behind me. Here's the man responsible for the Motown sound, record producer Lamont Dozer.
6: A new form of rock and roll, as we call it, came into play during the 60s when that was ushered in by
5: companies like Motown. When there was a nice backbeat, beautifully-sounding, good, balanced-sounding records. All America.
2: Here's Annie Lennox and Ben Harper. Motown music brought my world into abundance of color and soulfulness, because those melodic lines and those fantastic chord changes and those beats, as soon as you heard the very first note, you knew exactly what this was. It came out shouting like, God, smoky robinson on the very first day of motown
3: barry gordy was there and four other people and i i was among them and he said okay i'm starting this record company we are not gonna only make black music we're gonna make music for everybody we're gonna make music for the world we're gonna make music with some great beats and some great stories and we're gonna always do quality music We would go places in the south, taking our, our town reviews down there, you know. There's a big stage in the middle of the hall, and white people on one side and black people on the other side. It's segregated, but, you know, maybe you can do something about it. The next time we got to those places, the kids, they were dancing with each other. They were talking and mingling, holding hands. This little black boy holding a little white girl's hand or vice versa. That was his idea of what he wanted his record company to be.
2: Here's producer Greg Fillingains. The basic elements or
3: the main elements of the Motown sound had to do with a very solid but controlled gospel sound. It was rooted in, in a, a, a big beat, lots of bass, tambourine, drums, you know, very, very rhythmic.
5: I said I love someone, but I know where I'm going to find.
0: James Brown and the J.B.s in the mid-60s changed the sound of of what dance music is. If you listen to to, um, Live at the Apollo, it's a great band. It's a great show. It's still very bluesy, very churchy, the show is.
2: Come on! Here's Sheila E., Arthur Baker, Questlove, and Q-Tip.
4: It was the drum playing...
7: It was funkier than than Motown. Motown wasn't really funk That to me
6: is the hypnotic power of the James Brown effect. He
2: influenced Sly he influenced Stevie he influenced Prince he influenced dance music indeed he did. Now let's take this back to where we started. Here's the hit-making, songwriting production team for single ladies, Terrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. All aboard for
5: New York City!
3: Trick started this beat, just the drum and the, and the quirky sound that, that we heard. And I just sat in the back. I just thought about if I was Beyonce, say I would say what. I'm thinking, I'm quiet. He's not giving me no no love, he's not, he's not, we're not in it together, he's just. I'm giving him nothing, I'm Jedi. Trick, stopped the beat. And I look at him, I was like, what's wrong with you, man? (laughs) What are you doing? What are you doing? (laughs) And he's like, what do you mean? I was gonna start another beat. I was like, yeah, you just go and sit in the high beat, right? He's like, I got the whole thing. (laughs) He's like, I just wrote the whole song. The anatomy is there. The heart's there. The lungs, the the stomach. You know, the, the the I just have to put the legs on. She came by to just kind of poke her head in and kind of mm-hmm. hear what it was, and she was like, "Oh!" And she immediately, there was no lyrics typed out. Like there was no nothing. It was like. Yeah, let me get with that. Like, and, and the <laughs> yeah. next thing I know, she was on the other side of the booth singing. singing, and we were like, Yeah, this is this is this is this is happening. He's thinking about how to connect the dots. Lyrically, I'm thinking about B is from Houston. I'm thinking about Southern. I'm thinking about it like to me, it's a church beat. So I just started with the. It's like, that's a sanctified yeah, she's beat. She's a Southern girl. She's a Southern girl. I can see the paper fans in the church and the, and the wooden benches and the and the reverend and the baptisms that are going on and knowing what's happening after that. That's everything I get from one sound. So I'm like, how do I get this Southern girl on the dance floor?
2: I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always
0: Greg And there you have it Who would have thunk it From the gospel pews of the American South Throw in a lot of that great rhythmic talent of Beyonce And of course the producers And we're talking about Tyrius the Dream Nash And Chris Tricky Stewart The story of a song Single Ladies Put a ring on it Here on Our American Stories Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between. And we love to tell your stories. Send them to us at Our American That's Our American Network.org. And this next one you're about to hear, this next story, well, it's an odd one, a quirky one. It's about the radioactive Boy Scout. Here's Jesse.
8: David Hahn was an average kid growing up in the suburbs of Detroit during the 1980s, except when it came to science and the Boy Scouts. When those two worlds collided, he ended up building a homemade nuclear reactor in his parents' tool shed. His house was raided by the Environmental Protection Agency. They dismantle the shed, haul it away, and bury it out in the middle of the Utah desert.
9: Okay, down here in the basement, I have a few of my older scout uniforms uh, here. I love being in the scouts, it was great. Exploring in the woods, campfires, uh, wilderness survival. Uh, I think it was a good scout, but once in a while, uh, I went uh, outside the boundaries. The Boy
8: Scouts of America created the Atomic Energy Merit Badge in 1963. One of the options to receive said merit badge was to build a model nuclear reactor.
9: Uh, This is my uh, merit badge sash right here, and my three favorites here were atomic energy, chemistry, and general science. I was interested in nuclear energy before I even came in the Scouts, and they explained to me that they had this neat little-looking badge with the atom and electrons circling around it, and I thought that would be cool to have. And it was easy for David to learn
8: about atomic energy boy scouts published a book about it han got his hands on it and set off to work with instructions to quote build a model of a reactor show the fuel control rods shielding moderator and any cooling material explain how a reactor could be used to change nuclear energy into electrical energy to make things radioactive
9: smoke detectors watches thorium lantern mantles heart pacemakers Those were some practical, everyday radiation sources. I didn't understand how easy it was to perform nuclear experiments until I read this book. The
8: Atomic Energy Merit Badge was renamed to the Nuclear Science Merit Badge in 2005. The requirements no longer list building a model reactor as an option to earn the badge. John Griffin is with Boy Scouts of America.
9: A lot of people seem to think that it's unusual that there's an Atomic Energy Merit Badge, Uh, but I don't think it's any more unusual than some of the other specialized badges that we have, like uh, beekeeping or snow sports.
8: David was awarded his Atomic Energy Merit Badge on May 10th of 1991. He was 14 years old. To earn it, he made a drawing showing how nuclear fission occurs, visited a hospital radiology unit to learn about the medical uses of radioisotopes and build and model reactor using a juice can, coat hangers, soda straws, kitchen matches, and rubber bands. But by now, David had far greater ambitions. After achieving the rank of Eagle Scout, Hahn decided that he wanted to experiment with real radioactivity not merely the models that he had used to earn his badge. Aside from the Atomic Energy Instruction book, there was yet another book that would play a major role in David's obsession, the Golden Book of Science Experiments.
7: If any of you can get your hands on it, it's very instructive. It's a very fun book, unlike most of today's science books for kids.
8: Ken Silverstein wrote the definitive book about David Hahn, The Radioactive Boy Scout, the frightening true story of a whiz kid and his homemade nuclear reactor.
7: It's actually quite amazing to compare the Golden Book, which was written in 1960, which was, you know, this is when JFK was talking about putting um, people on the moon. You know, you had the Russians with Sputnik. This was an era when science was emerging, and it was thought that science could cure all of our ills. The Golden Book of Chemistry Experiments taught David how to make chlorine gas. It taught him how to make chloroform. It taught him how to blow things up, which of course every 12, 13, 14-year-old boy wants to do. I mean, what's more fun than blowing things up? Um, with chloroform, he actually made his, a homemade batch. Um, the golden book, the only caution the golden book gave to David um, or to any of its readers was, uh, don't breathe too deeply. And of course, being a 14-year-old boy, he breathed too deeply. And he said that he ended up flat on his back. He didn't know for how long, but it knocked him out cold. You go into a bookstore today and get a comparable book for, for kids, and it's really amazing. You know, the experiments, I, I think we may have been overly lawyered as a culture or something, because everything is risk-free. I mean, the Golden Book could never be published today. Um, the, uh, the ones today, there are no moving parts, no electricity. God forbid there should be a flame, um, because that could be terribly dangerous. And so you end up with experiments like... Building a Wormery or Let's Have Fun with the Wind. I mean, these are real titles of, ex- of experiments that I, f- I found in, in, in today's science books for kids. But David, you know, his, his mind was just... The Golden Book really unleashed this fervor and passion for science, and one can see why if you go back and, and look at it.
8: When we come back, the story of the radioactive Boy Scout continues right here on Our American Stories.
0: And when we come back, we're going to continue this story of David Hahn, the radioactive Boy Scout. And as we had said earlier, we want to hear your stories, particularly stories about adventure, about risk-taking as a kid. And, well, I don't think there's enough of it. I think we can all agree there's not. That's one of the points in the beginning of this story. So send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Your stories as a kid, risk-taking. Your Boy Scout stories, too, are very important to us. We've spent a lot of time talking about the Scouts, particularly the impact of Eagle Scouts on this country. The number of lives saved by Boy Scouts. It's an American city or two that wouldn't be here today without just simply the work that Boy Scouts have done to save a life. Through lifeguarding, through putting their own body in harm's way to protect another human being one of the great American organizations, the Boy Scouts. When we come back, more of the radioactive Boy Scout, David Hahn, his story here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories and we return now to the radioactive Boy Scout.
8: After the EPA raided 17 year old David Hahn's parents' home in suburban Detroit, removed the radioactive storage shed, and sent it to be buried in the Utah desert, it cost $75,000 to clean up David's mess. But he wasn't charged, he hadn't broken any laws.
9: Did he do anything wrong? I knew what I was doing wasn't completely right, but uh, I believe it was important to experiment. In life, uh, this is a quote, uh, you know, if you don't take risks, you don't do anything. If you don't do anything, you are nothing, end quote. And that's just something I heard on the radio. And that's sort of been my philosophy with chemistry and experiments.
8: One night as David's parents were sitting in the living room watching TV, the house was rocked by an explosion in the basement. They found David lying semi-conscious on the floor, his eyebrows smoldering. Unaware that red phosphorus was explosive, David had been pounding on it with a screwdriver, causing it to ignite. What turns this seemingly average middle-class kid from the suburbs into a mad scientist? Here again is author Ken Silverstein.
7: He didn't start off thinking about building a nuclear reactor. He started off with this idea that it would be neat to collect every item on the periodic table of elements. And as one of his physics teachers said to me, I thought it was a little weird, you know, I mean at his age I wanted to own an automobile and he wants to own every item on the periodic table, but it seemed harmless enough. So David goes out and he starts collecting these things. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the periodic table. A lot of the items on the periodic table are not scary or dangerous, I mean you've got calcium, nickel, gold, copper. So these things of course are very easy, but David decides that he also wants to get the elements at the higher end of the table, and that's where you start getting into the radioactive materials. Some of these aren't so hard to obtain, actually, as it turns out. One of the things I learned in researching the book was that a lot of radioactive elements can be obtained in household items or industrial tools which you might be able to get your hands on. For example, smoke detectors contain a small chip of americium, which is a radioactive element. It's a little silver chip in the detector, which actually triggers the alarm. So if the smoke starts building up in the house, it's the americium that triggers the alarm and lets you know, get out of the house. He got some of these when he was away at a Boy Scout camp. The other boys in his group were um, breaking into the girls' camp, and David was, while they were away, stealing these smoke detectors from the ceilings of all the cabins that they were staying in. And then he also, he was always extremely clever. Um, he, he would don a variety of disguises. The simplest ones would be, I'm a student working on a project. So he wrote away, and I got copies of the letters, actually. He wrote away to a smoke detector company, and he said he was working on a, a school project and he needed as many smoke detectors as he could get. And the nice woman in customer service wrote back and said, well, that's just great. We happen to have lots laying around of a, I think it was a discontinued model. So suddenly, 100 boxes of smoke detectors are arriving at David's house in suburban Detroit and he's extracting the americium chip and welding it together in his backyard to make a ball of americium which he wants to create a neutron gun which you can use to irradiate radioactive elements and make them further radioactive he had other very clever disguises as well though i mean he at one point became professor david Hahn, and he was a physics professor at a local high school in detroit writing letters to the nuclear industry and to government officials you know, desperately wanting to enrich his students lives um, and writing away for material that ostensibly he was going to be teaching his students, but in fact, information he needed to try to build a nuclear reactor, unbeknownst to the people he was writing to.
8: It should be clear by now the lengths that this kid was willing to go through to get the one thing he wanted radioactivity.
9: Oh, here we go. Smoke detectors have uh, one microcurie of uh, americium 241. That was always good as a source material for alpha particles. Containers, labware, it's all here. Let's see, sodium hypochlorite, propane I needed. Yes, lithium right here, six-volt lithium. I would get as many of those batteries
7: as I could, even though they were expensive.
8: In addition to aramecium, David also finds a way to get his hands on radium.
7: I think it's got a half-life of something like 30 million years or something. I mean, it's highly radioactive, a very dangerous substance back in the twenties and thirties and even in fact a little bit later radium used to be painted on the dials on the face of clocks if you even today if you go to an antique store and you find an old antique clock which is exactly what david did it will almost surely have been painted with radium to make it glow in the dark they stopped doing that because they discovered of course that radium kills people and what happened was that there was a very famous case of the so-called radium dial women, these young women, all women, in the 1920s, the early painters of these clocks, they took uh, a little paintbrush, they'd dip it in the paint, this tiny little vial of paint, because it was extremely expensive, and then they'd make a fine point in their mouth with the paintbrush, and many, many of them died a terrible death of cancer. So, at that point, um, or at some point, they decided, we better not do this anymore, and they substituted phosphorus, I think, initially. Radium will glow forever. Phosphorus lasts five or ten years, so you have to redo it. He went into an antique store in suburban Detroit. He was driving to his girlfriend's house, and he goes in with his Geiger counter. He was always wandering around suburban Detroit with his Geiger counter. He goes in, and he's testing these clocks, and he gets this extraordinary clicking from his Geiger counter on one clock. And he buys it, and he takes it home. And this was his big haul. It turned out that the painter of the clock probably 30 or 40 years earlier it was a wall clock a big wall clock had left a vial of radium paint inside the clock and so that was his big haul of radium
8: his new reactor was a bored out block of lead he used lithium from a $1000 worth of purchased batteries to purify the thorium ash using a bunsen burner but how did david get his hands on thorium lantern socks
7: there's a piece called the mantle, which looks like a little doll sock. It, it conducts the flame um, in, in one of those gas lanterns. Those used to be coated with a thorium dioxide. I don't believe they are anymore, possibly because of David Hahn's experiments. I don't know, but I think they've stopped using thorium. David, he went to a uh, a surplus store, a camping store, and he got huge quantities of these old lanterns. And he took the mantles out, he crushed them up, he purified them. It later turned out, when it was tested by the EPA, that he had purified thorium to a level eight times higher than the Nuclear Regulatory Commission requires for a license.
8: David was well aware of the situation, and he got scared. He decides to dismantle the entire operation and load it into the trunk of his car, when suddenly...
7: He gets stopped by the police. The police open up the trunk of his car, because David's very nervous, and they discover all of this weird stuff. I mean, there are cubes back there, there's all sorts of like mercury switches, there's a toolbox that is taped shut with electrician's tape and the police decide it's an atomic bomb and that David is a teenage terrorist, which he was not. I mean, he never had bad intentions, I want to stress that. The police, for some reason, which has never become clear, decide to tow a car containing what they think is an atomic bomb to their headquarters. And then they go, oh, no, we may have an A-bomb in the parking lot, and they have to quarantine part of the parking lot and notify the authorities in Lansing, Michigan, the state authorities. And they did. I mean, they contact the state authorities who contact the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they have a full-fledged little mini-nuclear crisis on their hands.
8: It's a lot of chaos from one 17-year-old kid just trying to chase down the one thing that gets him going. His chance encounter with the police triggers a federal radiological emergency response involving the FBI and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. On June 26, 1995, the EPA, having designated Hans' mother's property as a Superfund hazardous materials cleanup site, dismantled the shed and its contents and buried them as low-level radioactive waste in Utah.
9: I believe I did uh, produce a few atoms of of plutonium, maybe uh, a couple fissions here and there, but I don't think anything sustained any kind of reaction. See, I believe that it was the thought that counted.
8: He wasn't trying to hurt anybody. He was highly intelligent, a little strange, extremely motivated. In the end, he just wanted to be left alone with his experiments.
9: If somebody thinks they can accomplish something, And if somebody's willing to take some risk out there and their underlying intentions are good, then sometimes the laws don't always apply.
8: And it's not a story that ends well. He became depressed after the scandal and his mother committed suicide. He graduated high school and enlisted in the Navy, assigned to the nuclear-powered USS Enterprise aircraft carrier. He joined the Marines and was stationed in Japan before he was honorably discharged on medical grounds. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. On September 27th, 2016, at the age of 39, David Hahn died. The radioactive Boy Scout, his death ruled accidental due to the intoxication from the combined effects of alcohol and fentanyl. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
9: Should it be illegal to have the clocks? Uh, should life be illegal? The Constitution, I live in the land of the free. So um, if I'm not hurting anybody, why shouldn't I be free?
0: continue here with our american stories and now it's time for a story about one of our favorite places on earth our producer jesse edwards brings us the brief history of disneyland part one
8: by the time disneyland opened in 1955 everyone in the country knew the name of walt disney Between creating major animated films like Snow White, Fantasia, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Bambi, and Cinderella, and creating the mouse that started it all, Walt Disney had found more success than most men can dream of. The earliest known draft for the park was written up by Walt himself and sent as a memo to a production designer on August 31, 1948, where it was referred to as Mickey Mouse Park. But Walt had a hard time selling that idea to the bank. So he turned to television to raise money to build the park by creating a show called Disneyland on ABC. The network agreed to fund a good portion of the park, and in return, they got world-class Disney programming.
5: Walt Disney's Disneyland. And you
0: wish
5: upon a star Makes no difference who you are Each week as you enter this timeless land, one of these many worlds will open to you. Frontierland Tall tales and true from the legendary past. Tomorrow land. Promise of things to come. Adventureland, the wonder world of nature's own realm. Fantasyland, the happiest kingdom of them all. Presenting this week, the Disneyland Story.
8: Construction began on July 16, 1954, on a 160-acre lot of walnut trees and orange groves near Anaheim, California, at a cost of $17 million to complete. The park would open one year and one day later to invited guests and the media, while painting, hammering, and laying asphalt was going on within minutes of opening. following day, Disneyland opened to the public with a national live 90-minute television broadcast that was plagued with technical difficulties. It was anchored by three of Walt Disney's friends from Hollywood, Art Linkletter, Bob Cummings, and future president Ronald Reagan.
5: All activity on Main Street has ceased. Those carriages which have lined up for the parade to follow are full of celebrities. Walt Disney, Governor Knight, the mayor of Anaheim, and other dignitaries are talking to the three chaplains representing the Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish faith. And now, Walt Disney will step forward to read the dedication of Disneyland. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past, and here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world.
8: Admission was one dollar for adults, and 50 to 75 cents per child depending on their age. The temperature was unusually hot that day for Anaheim at 101 degrees. And because of a local plumber's strike, Walt had to make the decision to have working drinking fountains or running toilets. Thankfully, he chose the latter. The recently laid asphalt was famously fresh enough for ladies' heels to sink into the blacktop. There was a gas leak in Fantasyland, which caused Adventureland, Frontierland, and Fantasyland to close for the day. And there was a seven mile long traffic jam just to get into the park where some 28,000 people had gathered. Despite the rough start, it only took seven weeks for guest attendance to reach one million visitors. 12 different rides were running on opening day. Jungle Cruise, King Arthur's Carousel, Snow White's Scary Adventures, Dumbo, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, Disneyland Railroad, Storybook Land Canal Boats, Mad Tea Party, Peter Pan's Flight, Casey Jr. Circus Train, the Mark Twain Riverboat, and Autopia. Bob Gurr is one of the original Imagineers who previously worked as an animator and later found himself building
10: Disneyland rides for Walt Disney. Here's a secret weapon that that, uh, Walt had. He had a sense of what you might be able to do, and I was very curious. He was not interested in your portfolio, was not interested in what you'd done, he was interested in what you're going to do next. It was a very, very interesting uh, perception that he had. With those perceptions, he was picking out people right and left because he uh, had a lot of people in the studio, had a lot of friends, and he'd say something. i like, say, I'm looking for a really, really good set designer. you know any good set designers? Yeah, we got a couple of buddies. They're, all, they're working over at Fox. We got a couple of guys at, uh, at Paramount. Could you talk them into coming over and talk to me? So he's got all these leads going right and left, gathering up all these people. It's almost like he's gonna grow an orchestra, and the first thing he's gotta do, he's gotta go get the people who are gonna play the instruments while he writes the music. It's, it's that kind of, a, kind of a thing. I got swept into that thing that's going on in late uh, 1954. I had learned there's this thing called Disneyland. It was on the LA Times, great big drawing, and I thought, oh, that's fabulous. I hope they build a place like that, I'd go.
8: And go he did. One of the first projects Bob got to work on were the Autopia cars. As part of Tomorrowland, the Autopia cars represented the future of what would become America's multi-lane freeways,
10: which were still just being developed at the time. Autopia car designed the body. He assumed if I did the body, I do the mechanical part I just kept my mouth shut and I kept drawing. Long story short, we built uh, 40 cars. Uh, one was a show car for Walt, two were police cars, so we had 37 cars running on opening day. At the end of the week, we had two cars running. You learn quick. I mean, everybody, stuff broke, and then we get down to the spot. And now we're gonna teach ourselves what it takes to make a Disneyland. And that was a critical point, and everybody did stuff they've never done in their life because number one, there's no history of a Disneyland, there's nothing to research, we've never done it, nobody's ever done it, so we're all gonna do it anyway. And that was the inspiration that Walt could get you not to be scared to do that stuff. Do you know how the stuff was broken, worn out, and didn't work, and we were taking it out, putting it on the truck, and taking it back to fix it? Uh, The summer of 55, it was very hot most of the time, Uh, No, no cars were air conditioned. The freeway hadn't been built yet, Uh, and as fast as we fixed something, something else broke. But by the time we got to about Labor Day, we actually got stuff to last pretty doggone long uh, before it broke again. And at the same time, we have people that are learning how to manage people, inspiring everybody. We got keep going, keep going. We're going to get all this stuff figured out. And Walt's right there supporting to do all this. And somehow, that's where I really, really saw the magic of a leadership and the leadership with a guy that didn't look or act like a a leader. And you've been
0: listening to Bob Gurr, and he's one of the many people Walt Disney depended on to make his vision happen. And this is what great leaders do. They bring people in and they tap their talents. And Bob had said, he was interested in what you were going to do next. It's fantastic. And he also convinced you not to be scared, not to be afraid. In the end, that's what makes for great leadership in the end. Buy into a vision, let people own a piece of the vision, and then cheerlead them on. And when we continue, more of the remarkable story of Disneyland here on Our American Story. continue here on Our American Stories with a brief history of Disneyland Part 1. Here again is Jesse. By January
9: of 1960,
8: 20 million people had visited the park. On January 21st, the grand opening of the submarine ride, monorail, and the Matterhorn took place. Bob Gurr was tasked by Walt Disney to design the Matterhorn roller coaster, but Bob didn't know anything about roller coasters at the time, so he improvised.
10: Roller coasters, there's a thing called neutral slope. In other words, you have to have a slope that if you have a vehicle that's standing still, it won't move, and if it's moving, it will continue to move at that speed without accelerating or decelerating. This is the golden angle. The car goes down and comes back up, but not all the way back. It only comes up to the neutral slope. In between, it changes speed. It changes drag, aerodynamic drag, wheel drag, time of day, temperature, oil in the wheels. I need to know trigonometry, and I got an F and pass in geometry one in the 10th grade. And I need trigonometry. Luckily, I had a little book about, you know, old days you had a chart. I looked it up and said, oh, trig, 15 minutes. Why, did, why does it take a semester to learn trig? It's here, 15 minutes, okay. But that's the way we do stuff at Disney. We, we gotta go like mad. They had a secret weapon to cover the neutral slope. Booster brakes. How many times you ride the Matterhorn and if you're in the front car, you see a little tire that's rolling. All right, the bottom of the car is flat. If the car is too slow, it comes up to the top of the hill where it's going to stop. The booster brake pushes the car over the hill. What happens if you're going way too fast? It slows you down. Magic invention by necessity.
8: More than 800 gallons of paint were used to create a realistic look of heavy snowfall on the original Matterhorn, and it was the first major expansion of the park since its opening in 1955. It was the first roller coaster in the world to feature a tubular steel track and an electronic dispatch system which allowed for more than one car at a time to be on the track. There's even a secret room at the top of the Matterhorn where Disneyland employees can take a break and even shoot some basketball hoops. A year after opening the Matterhorn, construction of New Orleans Square began on the other side of the park. At a cost of more than $18 million to build, it cost more than the actual Louisiana Purchase, and it's home to the most popular rides in the park. Now, Pirates of the Caribbean was originally supposed to be a walk-through wax museum, but after Walt's huge success at the 1964 World's Fair with a prototype of It's a Small World he decided to make pirates a water ride. Psst, asked there.
5: It be too late to alter course, mateys, and there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel boarders. And mark well me words, mateys. Dead men... Tell no tales. <laughs> Ye come seeking adventure in salty old pirates, eh? Sure, ye've come to the proper place. But keep a weather eye open, mates, and hold on tight with both hands, if you please. There be squalls ahead, and Davy Jones waiting for them. What don't obey?
8: In fact, there are 630,000 gallons of water, 53 animatronic animals and birds, 75 animatronic pirates and villagers in the attraction, and it takes three days to empty and refill the bayou for renovations. Alice Davis was one of the original Imagineers to help develop the ride. She was responsible for the hundreds of intricately detailed costumes worn by the lifelike animatronics.
4: Since I was working on the costumes, um... I started thinking, you know, they should have more than one costume. They should have two costumes for each figure because if something happens, uh, there's um, hydraulic pipes, you know, cords that go through. Um, and if one of those cords gets twisted and, and snaps, you have this terrible red oil that comes out, and you can't get it out of the fabric. I mean, it's lost. And they said, oh, we, can't, we don't have the time. We have to have just one costume as quick as can be. Well, you can cut two out at the same time you cut one. When I went to the bookkeeper to say how much material I needed for shirts and pants and all this, I would give him twice the amount I needed, and he didn't know. So I made two costumes and I hid one set. Sure enough, when the ride opened, everything was fine, excepting about a month and a half later they had a fire. They came running to me, you know, oh, what are we going to do? We we have to keep the ride closed till we get more costumes. And uh, how long will it take you? And I said, well, I will be, uh, have everything ready for you in a half an hour. Well, and I showed them that I had made two sets <laughs> and they didn't know whether to hit me or kiss me. So, <laughs> but uh, the the show was only closed for one day.
8: That's one day that Walt Disney would never see because he died three months before the ride opened. Walt was diagnosed with lung cancer and passed on December 15th of 1966 at the age of 65. Walt Disney was cremated and his ashes were interred at Forest Lawn Cemetery. But there's another ride in New Orleans Square that Walt had been working on before he crossed over.
5: Welcome, foolish mortals, to the Haunted Mansion. I am your host, your ghost host. (laughs) Kindly step all the way in, please, and make room for everyone. There's no turning back now.
8: The Haunted Mansion was originally designed to be a museum of the weird, a museum of strange and haunted items from all over the world. The concept then morphed into a haunted walk-through wax museum, similar to the way Pirates of the Caribbean was developed. Many of the attractions leading up to the ride itself inside of the Haunted Mansion are the early concepts for the Museum of the Weird. The man who came up with these original concepts is legendary Imagineer Rolly Crump, another Disney animator who was recruited to design rides at Disneyland. I remember seeing a movie,
6: Beauty and the Beast, that was made by Jean Cateau, the French director of this monster that would come home at night into his castle, and all the arms uh, on the wall that held the torches would help help him go forward with him. And then there were faces over the fireplace that looked at each other, and steam came out of their mouths. And I thought that's the kind of stuff we got to put in the haunted mansion because prior to that it was just a bunch of eyes going back and forth and footprints on the ceiling and stuff that I felt was kind of corny but you know this was the thing uh, that I loved about Walt if you always had to show him something he'd never seen before he didn't want to constantly trace himself and I think that that's the one thing I offered to him was uh, the imagination of, of doing something different and not only that Standing up for it, you know, and saying, well, I think we can use it no matter what, Walt, some way or another. And so then he went home and figured out how to do it.
8: And that is perhaps what Walt Disney did best, turning imagination into reality. With nearly 20 million visitors to the park each year, it costs somewhere around $3.5 million just to operate the park every day. But Disneyland is so much more than statistics and earnings. It's the smell of warm churros in the air on a warm summer night with your family. It's the look on your kid's face when you bring them to the park for the first, second, or third time and getting to relive those moments with them as you remember when your parents took you there as a kid, like mine did. It's like Walt said Here, age relives fond memories of the past, and here, youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts. have created america with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world and to think it all simply started with a dad who wanted to build an extraordinary place to spend time with his kids
5: well it came about when my daughters were very young and i saturday was always uh, daddy's day with the two daughters so we'd start out and try to go someplace with you know different things and i take them to the merry ground, and I took them different places, and as I'd sit there while they, uh, they rode the merry ground, did all these things, sit on a bench, you know, eating peanuts, I felt that there should be something built, some kind of a, an amusement enterprise built, where that the parents and the children could uh, have fun together. So that's how Disneyland started. Well, it took many years. It was a, a whole period of maybe 15 years developing. I started with many ideas, threw them away, started all over again, and eventually it evolved into what you see today as Disneyland. But it all started from a daddy with two daughters wondering where he could take them, where he could have a little fun with them,
0: too.
8: For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
0: And great job, as always, Jesse, and my goodness, there is one line at the top of my notepad here. The animators were tamped to design rides. What a crazy idea you'd think on the surface, but engineering decisions can get made later. The Imagineers had to imagine up what these new rides would look like. What a story, the brief history of Disneyland, part one. Looking forward to more from Jesse, here on Our American Stories.